As was standard practice among the vessels of fascist governments, a political officer sailed among the complement of ship's officers. Second mate Karl Heinz Robke represented the Nazi party, eyes and ears open for seditious anti-party activity or utterances. In the present day, people write about political correctness as though the concept is, and only ever has been, a euphemism for people castigating you for blurting out your poorly thought out opinions and bigoted phrasings, but in the era under examination, political correctness amounted to towing the party line or getting into serious trouble with the law, like jail, prison, execution type trouble, depending on how far your incorrectness strayed from the political orthodoxy. People invoking the phrase to signify their displeasure at being called out for their bigotry can jam some historical content in their indignation hole. Recent events in the US suggest the phrase might once more take on this more sinister meaning. Second mate Robke was present as much for his spying on his fellow Germans as he was for his skills and experience as a mariner. A tertiary military element entered the expedition mandate with orders that the return voyage see the Schwabenland visit Trinidad and Martin Vaz Islands off the Brazilian coast in order to assess their suitability as U-boat bases. Passing down the English Channel, the meteorologists kicked off their expedition's scientific program with the first radio sonde. Previous expeditions used pilot balloons, but this is the earliest record of data logging instrument packages that send their recordings out via radio transmitter I've come across in my Antarctic reading. A pilot balloon tells a Met observer the direction and speed of winds at different altitudes. Back in the day, the balloon was inflated with hydrogen to a given buoyancy, measured with a simple system of calibrated weights, giving it as close to a fixed rate of ascent as possible. Two observers working at opposite ends of the ship to provide a stereoscopic track of the balloon after its release kept the balloon centred in the crosshairs of their theodolite's telescopic sights and called out the associated data to a recorder who kept time and wrote down the bearings and angles of elevation the observers called. Radiosons attach a battery-powered instrument package to a larger balloon that carries the package through an atmospheric profile, transmitting temperature, pressure and humidity data as it rises. Lange used a combination of German-made marine sons and Lange sons to provide a comparison of their utility in high latitudes. Regula used the fixed instrument data. Assessing the balloon data took too long to generate weather forecasts for use by the ship's officers and by the supervals pilots. On the 21st of December, the Schwabenland passed Cape Finisterre the westernmost extension of the Iberian Peninsula, and once the end of the Roman Empire's understanding of the world. Several of the ship's complement commented on the Germans fighting the Republicans in what we now know were the closing stages of the Spanish Civil War. Once south of Ascension Island, the echo sounder came into use. Working four-hour shifts, the sonar team made soundings every half hour and more frequently in areas demonstrating rapid changes in bathymetry. On the 9th of January 1939, the Schwabenland received a weather and ice report from the German factory whaling vessel, Vikinger, operating on the Antarctic Circle. Good news. Very little sea ice sighted in the areas of interest. Due to meet the Vikinger to deliver new radio valves, Captain Kral took the opportunity to order a metre of whale sausage and some whale steaks. 
the Schwabenland met with the Vikingers' tanker ship, the Anna Knudsen, at 63 degrees south, handing over radio valves in exchange for Captain Kral's truncated parcel of small goods. The tanker couldn't fill the whole order, and handing over a bundle of mail to the northbound ship. The shroud of secrecy the Germans applied to this third German Antarctic expedition wasn't entirely effective. King Harkon VII proclaimed Norwegian sovereignty over Dronning Maudland just five days before the German ship and its cargo of dorniers and empty casks reached the Antarctic margins, Norway's stated interest spanning 20 to 45 degrees west. Dr Adolf Hull, director of the Norwegian Svalbard and Arctic Ocean Survey, received a visit from the attaché to the German embassy, Dr Lehmann, who sought Hull's opinion on the sector model of territorial claims at play among most claimant nations operating in Antarctica. From the feedback he received, Lehmann recognised Hull likely joined the dots and reported this to Voltart, but it was Hull's visit to Berlin in December 1939 that cemented his suspicions about German ambitions in the South. Hull tried to meet with Dr Hermann, the two having previously discussed Hermann's Fiesler-Storch-based aerial survey in Svalbard. Dr Hermann's wife explained her husband had left on a polar voyage, providing enough detail to, to prove Hull's early deduction correct. Hull immediately notified the Norwegian Foreign Office. The Norwegian Parliament didn't tarry in passing legislation, and King Harkon VII made it all official with his royal seal and such. Britain, New Zealand, Australia and France immediately recognised the claim. Leo Amory's continent-wide ambition lying in tatters among this rearguard action by existing claimants, attempting to buttress what ground they managed to carve out as their own. The Soviet Union rejected the Norwegian claim for its inclusion of Peter I Island, which they considered Russian, due to its discovery by Bellingshausen the previous century. Voltart heard about the Norwegian claim and sent the news on to Richa by radio, then arranged press releases about the German expedition, further secrecy being counterproductive in any future word-based tussle over territorial rights. Surprised at the dearth of ice, the expedition carried on south, eventually meeting loose pack on the morning of the 19th of January, and more dense flows that night. The first reconnaissance flight shot off the catapult at 0440 on the morning of the 20th. Wilkins took two Lockheed Vegas to Deception Island in the late 1920s, but the logic behind the second airframe was they could continue flying if one Vega experienced mechanical issues. Bird's expedition undertook some flights in tandem as a nod to mutual support, but the dissimilar airframes prevented a full mutual support framework. The German VALs constitute the first time equivalent airframes went south with the express purpose of one providing a safety net for the other. Any time a VAL took off from the Schwabenland during the expedition, the partner airframe was quickly winched onto the catapult and made ready to follow its twin at short notice, in the event of an emergency. The advanced radio sets carried in each Dornier transmitted regular heading, as determined by Sun Compass, and airspeed updates by Morse code, allowing those still at the ship to follow progress by dead reckoning on a chart, and provided notes on significant landmarks that might be of use in following the flight track should anything go wrong. The aircrew of the standby aircraft waited out the flight of their counterparts in their teddy bear flying kit and seated in the Dornier ready to go, a practice mirrored in many successful high latitudes activities where any delay in getting a rescue underway is likely to cost lives.
The Boreas' test flight demonstrated everything worked fine in the cold, allaying fears about the low temperature behaviour of the benzene fuel, and revealed the ice edge the ship lay up near as a false margin. Guided from the air, the Schwabenland steamed around the tip of the pack ice finger and into a wide bay further south. The ground crew serviced the Boreas, and Schermacher took off again the following morning for the first photographic survey flight, departing south at 0430 in the bright early morning daylight of the high latitude's austral summer. Losner aboard as mechanic, Gruber on the radio, and Salter running the survey cameras. The supervals carried emergency equipment and rations sufficient to keep a party alive on the ice for a week or so, and longer periods on the march could be resupplied from the air by the other aircraft. Richer felt confident that the preparations in hand could handle anything other than deaths incurred in a crash. The crew aboard the Boreas realised that the terrain rising below them would intersect their altitude long before the designated point of safe return in their fuel consumption model. The only way to improve the performance of an airframe while it's in the air is to make it lighter, so they turfed anything not critical to survival out the window. This included the stash of aluminium javelins. And while this loss of fascist logos and fence post pissing markers never went on the official flight record, no further mention of the javelins turns up in the reports of subsequent flights, whereas the flags dropped at the furthest point south on each flight receive record in those same reports. An Antarctic geology colleague at Geoscience Australia, reliable on pretty much every other front we ever discussed, once passed along an anecdote recounting that Richer resented the party sufficient that he didn't want his efforts recorded by their swastikas. But if Richer let that story percolate out of the expedition, I read it as an attempt to retroactively redeem his character and distance his achievements from the politics that funded them. A lot of scientists and explorers have tried to make out their endeavours are somehow pure and entirely divorced from the bucks or the ideology that bring them about, but that usually doesn't wash with me, let alone when a bloke's ditched his wife for the sake of his career because her religion posed an inconvenient long toe over the party line. If you wanted shot of the javelins, he had the entire Atlantic to deep-six them over, and I think the weight consideration aboard the Superval is a far more coherent and compelling explanation of the situation. Likely, it was kept quiet from second mate Robkey, to whom such a javelin jettisoning might have constituted high-order heresy, perhaps even treason. With the Boreas in the air and the Passat on the catapult, biologist Barclay shot a Waddell and a crab eater seal, the pelts going into the scientific collection for later display in museums, and the meat going in the pot to sate the Teutonic taste for meat-based meals. Three hours into the flight, the crew of the Boreas sighted a mountain range, the first significant new feature added to the body of knowledge of Antarctica by their efforts. More mountains rose up behind that range as the aircraft pushed south until Laval, flying at over 10,000 feet above sea level, passed only a few hundred feet above the terrain, in spite of the airframe growing lighter by the mass jettisoned out the window and half the fuel load already being used up in propelling them to that point. With the ground so close to the cameras, the coverage the images achieved with each exposure shrank to barely tens of square metres, diminishing the geographic return per unit effort, and the safety margins available should the engines give any trouble, shrinking in concert. Schermacher turned north, and a weighted flag went out the window. Meyer piloted the next flight the following day, 
taking the Passat on a different course until whiteout conditions necessitated he turn away from the increasing elevation to the south. He tracked east into clear air and over lower terrain, and then turned north to regain the ship while still photographing new ground. Once the Passat reached the final stages of its return leg, Schermacher took Richer aloft in the Boreas to view the newly discovered nun attacks. Mayer flew the third long-distance flight the following day, before the weather changed and curtailed flying for the better part of a week, resuming on the 29th with Schermacher in the Boreas. This flight reached 72 degrees 30 minutes south, 300 nautical miles south of the coast, and sighted an area later named Richerland. While Schermacher navigated the return leg, Mayer catapulted skyward in the Passat to seek coastal shore sites suitable for a claiming ceremony, landing on a stretch of open water alongside a low ice shelf lip. A ping with a depth sounder showed the benthos lay more than 400 metres below, denoting their shore station as a long way from shore, but unable to travel far from the aircraft, they made the most of the situation, fixing their position with a bubble sextant, raising a swastika flag, and declaring the area Neuschwabenland. Three Adelie and one Emperor Penguin, witnesses to the claiming ceremony, were bundled aboard the Dornier and flown back to the ship, where they spent their days in a pen on the weather deck, losing condition on a diet of North Sea herring from the galley. Biologist Barclay force-fed the penguins, holding each one in turn and filling its gullet with mashed herring, until the birds became sufficiently accustomed to the food that they fed themselves. On the 30th, Mayer flew the Passat over mountains later named Dreigalskiberg and Filchnerberg. The sixth flight, in addition to a north-south transit as far as the elevation allowed, incorporated an east-west leg in an attempt to cross-reference the previous flights to each other. Short of ground truth in control points along the flight tracks, this stood as the Germans' best possible attempt to give geographic validity to the accumulating data. Sites were taken with a bubble sextant during the flights, but such corrections to dead reckoning calculations, performed while flying along at speed, are more useful as a means to hitch a navigational target than they are reliable position fixes suitable for cartography, and the data proved less useful than anticipated, but more on that later. This time, the Boreas made the more leisurely flight to seek a landing site and another flag-raising ceremony saw a juvenile and down-covered emperor penguin join the growing aviary on the Schwabenland. The Passat experienced some engine trouble on the seventh and final long-distance flight, but came good under the care of the pilot and mechanic while airborne. Reassured their counterparts were safely en route back to the ship, Germaka took Richer up in Boreas for a proposedly short flight that saw them discover an ice-free region, bounded by glacial termini and dotted with lakes of liquid water. Though the lakes proved too small to land on, they retasked the following day's photographic flight to document this anomalous geography Richer named the Schirmacher Oasis, noting the region could serve as an excellent footing for permanent structures and human habitation, an observation later validated by the establishment of several long-term research stations within the ice-free bounds of their discovery. A final flight, this time featuring Mayer at the controls of Boreas, 
the previous engine concerns and developing issues with the elevator control surfaces seeing Passat dogged down on its cradle for the remainder of the expedition. On the 5th of February, examined ice conditions to the north of the ship. They made a final landing along the low barrier edge with accompanying flag raising and penguin gathering. The Dorniers accrued a total flying time of 86 hours in Antarctic skies, three quarters of those hours dedicated to aerial photographic surveying. On the 6th of February, Captain Kotas lowered two boats for those inclined to make a landing on an ice floe and to take a load of pictures. Four more Adelies were caught, though one jumped the gunwale on the way back to the ship, and a good job too, given the fate of its compatriots. Four more seals were shot and butchered, and Richer ordered the Schwabenland head north before the looming freeze saw them iced in like the Gauss and the Deutschland before them. They weren't equipped for an Antarctic winter, and their efforts would prove moot if they didn't get the new data north and published at the hurry-up. Dr. Herman never got ashore to examine the local geology, and wasn't even afforded a flight over the mountains. His geological findings during the expedition arose entirely from his examining the photographic record of each flight. He did get some crop stones from penguins, but didn't figure these offered more than a very broad picture of the geology at play in the region, given how far penguins can range, and that the stones in their crops might already have travelled a long way in the continental glaciers. In spite of this limited information, Dr. Herman developed a cross-sectional model of Dronning Maudland, featuring mountain ranges buried under glaciers and incorporating the depression into the mantle caused by the weight of overlying ice and the slow flow of ice from the dome to the sea. Not far off what later work with seismic surveys revealed. The voyage north took longer than the transit south, no longer up against the ice clock that determines who gets what done along the Antarctic coast, Richer ordered regular heaves too, so the oceanographic and biological sample winches could deploy Nansen bottles and plankton nets to depth. The slow transit up the prime meridian saw the geography and cartography worked up as much as possible from the flight data and photographs. Typewriters clacked out the various reports due on reaching port. The liquid water lakes in the Schirmacher oasis became a bone of contention among the scientists, some proposing they mirrored the hot water springs in Iceland, remaining liquid through geothermal activity, while others considered the meltwater from the surrounding glacial termini. Unable to reach the oases to examine the systems more closely, the truth of the matter awaited future expeditions. The radiosom schedule went ahead as usual, but the echo sounding team got a break during the stations, much to their own relief, and to that of the watchers on break, who no longer awoke to the half-hourly ping resonating through the tween decks. The relative peace was shattered by the groaning, whining of Paulson's hydrographic winch, which the crew dubbed Mad Paula. An attempt to save time by lowering the hydrographic rosette and the plankton net simultaneously went poorly when the ship drifted enough to see the lines tangled up beneath the keel delaying the ship far more than independent deployments required. Passing by Vitoya, engineers Bruns and geologist Herman attempted to mount the sonar gear horizontally to echo sound the north coast and resolve a picture of the associated coastal shelf, but the results never came to light in subsequent reports, suggesting this early attempt at multi-beam swaffing didn't go well. 
A single-day port call at Cape Town saw preliminary reports on their way to Voltart, but a provisional idea to have the Supervals fly home from there was nulled by the aircraft needing too much dogging down and dismantling through the Southern Ocean to allow a ready transition back to flying status. The aircraft remained in their cradles throughout the northward voyage. The Antarctic aerial photography covered around 250,000 square kilometres of previously unrecorded terrain, but with no ground control and attempts at cross-linking the north-south tracks of the long-distance flights rendered largely ineffectual by wind and pressure-mediated errors in the dead-reckoned navigational tracks, the resulting maps couldn't accurately represent the topography from which the data arose. The international press picked up the story of the expedition based on the information sent out from Cape Town and subsequent press releases and speculated about how a dispute between Norway and Germany over the overlapping claims might resolve, which seems like some navel-gazing reportage given the looming war everyone knew was coming, until you consider how the press can still obsess about hemlines and diets when international politics in the present day is going to hell in a handbasket. Norway contested the trumpeted German claims on the grounds of prior discovery, but the German publicists gainsayed this gambit citing the German efforts as more thorough and therefore more worthy, up until 1940, when the Norwegian protests and the resulting German publicity efforts became moot. But we'll get to that. A transit from Cape Town to Pernambuco, Brazil, offered all new data, the absence of trade between the cities precluding much ship traffic, let alone any ships accumulating bathymetric, oceanographic and meteorological measurements and samples. Regula mounted an electrical anemometer in a lifebuoy and allowed this to drift to the end of a waterproofed electrical cable during sample stations. This measured the wind speed just 0.6 metres above the sea surface and free of interference from the ship's structures, a first for oceanographic meteorological observations, though the system couldn't be deployed in anything above 8 on the Beaufort scale, as the contraption invariably turned turtle in strong winds. Herman supported Regula's wave-height wind speed measurements with stereoscopic cinecamera footage of the waves the meteorologist deployed his modified instruments into, offering a three-dimensional proxy of wave-height and shape for direct comparison to the data Regula recorded. Seeking to fulfil the military reconnaissance mission, the ship anchored up at the island of Trinidad to make good a report on the occupational status, some goats and pigs, telecommunications, none, and port facilities, also none, on the 600 metre tall plug of volcanic remnants. Trying to put ashore in a rowboat in large swells, a party of eight were turned turtle in the surf and stranded when the waves smashed the boat. A second party swam ashore from the ship's launch, and a rocket line was used to try to put Salter ashore with his camera and dry clothes for the strandees. Everything arrived soaked, so no photographic record exists of the sunburnt and hungry shore party. Barclay and Regula climbed the steep and jagged volcanic peak to no great effect, and the party, after rescue arrived in the form of inflatable rubber boats, floated through the surf line on tethers the sailors could use to haul the strandees back out to sea. The shore party reported to Richer that the island featured none of the elements of a good U-boat support base, and Richer duly wrote this up as a formal report to the Kriegsmarine. Barclay caught some fresh fish for his penguin charges, but their number declined as the ship passed through the tropics, the dailies and emperors suffering equally. At Pernambuco, the Schwabenland's mail went aboard a Dornier 18 mail plane, a diesel-powered descendant of the Vale and Supervale designs, 
headed for Berlin via Lisbon from the Schwabenland's sister ship, the Friesenland. The expedition recrossed the equator on the 24th of March, bringing all scientific programs to an end. The ship arrived in Cuxhaven on the 11th of April, the third German Antarctic expedition concluding, and by all metrics set for it, a roaring success. Not a scientific or geographic one though, and not much of a political one in the end. Greetings in person from Goering and Voltart, and a congratulatory telegram from Hitler. What more could a fascist adventurer hope for? I mean, besides their humanity. Newsreel footage of Emperor Penguins waddling down the gangway to the wharf cemented the association between Antarctica and the Fatherland in the minds of the German populace. The seven surviving Emperor Penguins and one surviving a daily went to the Berlin Zoo, where they drew big crowds for the short time they remained alive in captivity. Further press releases led to further international press coverage which, in turn, spurred further speculation about the future of Antarctic territorial claims. Germany professed loudly that no other nation could back their Antarctic territorial ambitions to the extent the great German Empire could, which is spun to the all-fuck on every front, given what actually arose from the expedition in terms of data output, which we'll come to in a moment, and structures on the ground amounting to a bundle of javelins at some unknown point, and some flags dropped at the furthest point south reached by each long-distance flight, their locations only known to within the very wide error bars placed on dead reckoning calculations as applied to the long distances in fickle weather. Regardless, German orators and authors announced the Antarctic coast German between 20 degrees east and 10 degrees west, based on the expedition's efforts, though a formal announcement along those lines never came out. Stamps celebrating the expedition were printed, and medals for the intrepid crew were minted. The usual sort of hullabaloo a nation goes in for, in order to remind its citizens of their stake in a faraway concept. Goering disseminated expedition findings regarding the performance of fuel pumps, fuels and engines in very low temperatures to his Luftwaffe technical staff, information that would prove of considerable help in the as yet shadowy German plans to invade Russia. Voltart identified three mechanisms by which to buttress the German toehold in the cold the expedition established. Rapid and thorough publication of scientific papers based on expedition findings. A second expedition to ground truth the flight track data and geo-reference the data held in the aerial photography. And official government recognition of German territorial claims in the south, ready for publication and dissemination as soon as the second expedition returned. Many of the preliminary reports worked up in the transit north, readily edited up to scientific papers, and entered the peer review process shortly after the Schwabenland tied up in Hamburg. Similarly, Richer worked up a framework for a second expedition and handed this to Voltart almost as soon as he came ashore. Where further work in Droning Maudland would see the data from the first expedition validated, Richer didn't see much mileage in such consolidation in an area where the hasty Norwegian territorial claim already held some sway in the eyes of other major Antarctic players, and where the whale stocks were already badly depleted. His proposal for a second expedition, if approved by Voltart, would see Germany capitalise on the experience of the first expedition by applying it to a larger and more comprehensive effort somewhere along the as yet uncontested Antarctic coast in the west, south of the Pacific Ocean. In mid-April 1939, 
the leader of a would-be British Antarctic expedition nixed by the outbreak of war, Ernest Walker, requested data on the limits of the German flights, but Richer didn't respond, likely on Voltart's advice. Better to leave the question unanswered and see how the war played out, than to hobble a broader, albeit fanciful claim that might be imposed with a veneer of sincere credibility should a sufficiently strong Nazi hand result from the looming war. Ernest Walker never got his expedition aboard the westward off the ground. In late May, the Berliner Illustriert Zeitung published a sketch map worked up by flight engineer Franz Pruschoff, and Voltart chased up this breach of official secrecy with Richer. Besides not conforming to the German ideals of accuracy and precision, the map gave away the sort of information he didn't want leaked to Ernest Walker, and here it was, available for a few fennec at the newsstands. Prushoff's cartography and the dodgy data it represented turned up in 1939 government publications out of Canberra, the Australian government racing to define and thereby limit German territorial interests to the space on the paper it occupied. Washington, D.C., with a less overt stake at the continent visible at the time, kept its council until 1943, working up hydrographic charts incorporating German-sided landmarks and associated names with more accurate, though still not ground-truthed, coordinates likely arising from Richard's official 1939 report, which went to press as an issue of the Annalen der Hydrographie und Maritimen Meteorologie. The cartographic data derived from the dead reckoning tracks and the stereoscopic oblique photography were worked up in 1 to 50,000 scale maps by Hansa Luftbild and Zeiss. Approximate heights were calculated by the relative shift in position between exposures, offset by the aircraft's approximate height above ground, and tied to the aircraft's approximate position. Lots of approximations, but more information than existed about the areas in question before Rich's expedition. The east-west photographic passes proved less useful than hoped, as even with generous positioning wiggle room, the cartographers couldn't correlate features between any two orthogonal tracks that they might readily apply in generating the 1 to 50,000 scale maps. The 1 to 500,000 scale maps came together more readily as the details visible in the aerial photographs shrank out of sight and the overall vibe of the topography told the bulk of the story. The International Whaling Conference in July 1939 saw several interested nations push to set aside the Bellingshausen Sea as a whale sanctuary. This push identified the Bellingshausen Sea coasts as a prime candidate for further German exploration. The whales there hadn't been hit by whaling interests, and no one had a flag ashore there yet. Voltart began marshalling his resources to put a second aerial survey voyage exactly there. German whaling interests could be operating uncontested in the Bellingshausen Sea as early as the 1940-41 Austral summer. Richer began making preparations to use the Schwaben line once more, this time employing larger, three-engine Dornier 24s, representing a dramatic leap forward in aerodynamic and mechanical technology over the staid but dated Vals. Two additional vessels under Captain Kral's command, the trawler Kerdingen and the whale catcher Val 1, would sail in support of the expedition to better batter themselves against the ice-exerted pressures expected in any attempt to put ashore dog teams and an ice-based aviation contingent. Besides a radio hut, Richer wanted to land a Fiesla Storch light observation plane and a Junkers 52 transport. 
where the Dornier flying boats operating from the ship offered the greatest overall reach. The Junkers 52 could climb higher to extend operations into areas of interest when the Dorniers ran out of altitudinal puff, and the Fiesla Storch could take off and land in just a few fuselage lengths, offering scope to quickly place survey teams along a flight track to establish ground control points with greater ease than dog slogging. The three airframes offered flexibility the previous expedition lacked, though anyone paying attention to the lessons on offer from the BGLE would recognise that dropping dogs from the roster on the basis of the inclusion of the Fiesla was a premature dismissal of canine merits. Desiring a longer working season in the south, Richard proposed the ships head off early enough to rendezvous at Deception Island in late November. On the 1st of September 1939, German prison inmates were forced to dress in Polish military uniforms and received lethal injections before their guards released them into a German radio transmitter station near the German-Polish border. The staged incident acted as the tripping point for Hitler's blitzkrieg against Poland, and the Second World War kicked off. Germany was on the offensive for its Lebensraum. To punish the rest of Europe for its humiliating loss in the previous war and the subsequent punitive reparations and strictures, and to apply the shitty, invariably selfish principles of eugenics at a scale previously unimagined. The Pacific voyage was off as the nation switched to a war footing in the short term, but Voltart nixed the Bellingshausen sea ideas in the longer term in light of newly announced US ambitions in that sector. President Roosevelt, spurred by Germany's activities in the South, sought to apply official US government aegis in a territorial claim over all the Pacific sector of Antarctica, from the Bay of Wales around to the edge of the Falkland Island Dependency, more of which anon. Voltart encouraged Richard to plan for a return to Neuschwabenland once the war was over, which shouldn't be long given the pace at which German forces overran nations or gained compliance or collaboration from European powers. Richard revised his plans to either establishing control points for the 1938-1939 work or a new series of flights over Kaiser Wilhelm II land, named during the voyage of the Gauss, but nulled as a German territorial claim by the Versailles Treaty, and subsequently incorporated into Australian interests during the Banzari voyages. The Australian factor, or the German invasion of Norway in April 1940, or a combination of the two, saw Voltart opt for the resurrected Dronning Maudland ambitions, and Richard began attending to the details. British defiance and Hitler's decision to invade Russia ensured the war wasn't over as quickly as expected, and the Schwabenland went into more direct Kriegsmarine service, acting as a floating base for Blomenvoss 138 flying clog maritime patrol aircraft around the Norwegian coast. With no funding and no clear path to funding in the foreseeable future, the expedition office closed up shop in November 1941. With several of the scientific parties signed into military service, progress on the scientific reports and papers stalled, and no one remained available to present expedition findings at scientific conferences. Richer published the official expedition report in 1942, and I'd like to get a hold of the copy for the sake of the anaglyphs alone. Twenty such red and green overlaid images, when viewed through the similarly coloured lenses in an appended pair of glasses, show the most impressive geological features in Erzatz 3D. The 1 to 50,000 and 1 to 250,000 scale maps therein 
constitute the last workup of the expedition data until several years after the end of the war. Oceanographer Paulson, geophysicist Burek, biologist Barclay and meteorologist Langer died in the conflict. A lot of expedition material, including all the aerial photography negatives, the geophysical data and Barclay's plankton samples, were destroyed during Allied bombing raids, though prints of the aerial photographs survived. The Schwabenland was torpedoed in April 1944 and went aground while stricken by the resulting damage. It served as an accommodation hulk in Oslo for a while, but never operated as a catapult ship again, eventually being scuttled in the Skagerrak. The third German Antarctic expedition gave the first inland insights into droning Maudland, and while the cartography arising directly from the flights of the Schwabenland's Dorniers carried erroneous positions, Later expeditions provided sufficient ground control data regarding prominent geographical features that the surviving prints of the aerial photographs did eventually yield a useful crop of geographic information. Regula and Langer's meteorological work provided the world's first North Sea to Antarctic coast cross-section through the atmosphere above the Atlantic, and Regula's workup of the data after the voyage provided the first model of Southern Hemisphere atmospheric circulation. Gaburek's preliminary report on magnetic measurements didn't offer much scientific news. The few measurements he made that weren't spoilt by oscillations of the ice flows on which the expedition members made their few landings revealed the local dip, but very little temporal variation. Gaburek's death during the war prevented his integrating his data into a larger picture generated by other magnetic investigations. By 1943 and 1944, Swedish geographer Hans Wilhelmsen Allman used prints of the aerial photographs to examine glacial moraines passed over by the Vals. The derived picture of glacial retreat from previous terminal moraines provided evidence of past climatic changes. His efforts working on the data deriving from the German expedition had a major influence in getting the Norwegian, British, Swedish expedition up and running, more of which anon. The start of the Second World War ended German whaling in the Southern Ocean. Factory ships already fitted out for the Austral summer whaling season of 1939-40 suddenly operated as transport and tanker vessels for the Wehrmacht. The German Navy requisitioned the chaser boats for minesweeping duties. Well organised and well run, the attempt to implement the German FAT plan founded for the same reason Germany did. Hitler's ambition exceeded his reach a near-run thing for the whales and for the world. A couple of years ago, I told this story to my father, and between us, we mapped how we would go about fabricating, weathering, and then putting on the market replica Nazi Antarctic javelins. Perfect for the Nazi memorabilia collectors to bid up to a nice retirement package. I think we had it pretty well sorted, having the design, a willing collaborator with an engineering workshop, and a plan by which to weather the resulting replicas convincingly. But we didn't go ahead with the idea. Not out of any sense that fraud is bad and therefore shouldn't be countenanced in any context, because fuck Nazis. I figured anyone collecting Nazi memorabilia is doing so for some pretty scabious reasons, and I didn't want to have to actually meet that sort of person. Given the present state of Australian racism, that's probably for the best, because the last place I presently need to be is standing near a neo-Nazi while wielding a metre and a half long sharp thing, because I like not being in prison. 
Killing someone constitutes murder if you don't have sufficient cause to end their life. And while I think I could make a case that the threat neo-Nazis pose to my community, let alone my misogynist family, constitutes a good reason to want neo-Nazis dead. Convincing a court of law that's the case when facing murder charges arising from a death resulting from an attempt to sell fake antiquities is another matter.